Okay, we're going to turn our attention back to Daniel chapter 7 through 12 tonight, and I'm going to continue with the introduction that we started last week. If you recall, last week we began to try to answer the question, why are we not dispensationalists? And one of the reasons that we uh, are taking up that subject is because dispensationalism is uh, so popular and so prevalent, prevalent in our day, especially uh, in the United States among uh, evangelicals. And so we want to have a Berean spirit about uh, this doctrine as well as all doctrines, and we want to test uh, what we believe uh, squarely against the uh, test of Scripture. And so last week I, I told you we were going to look at it under several headings. Um, the distinctives of dispensationalism are uh, primarily that there are seven distinct dispensations. Each dispensation has a definite beginning and a definite termination, and each uh, of these uh, dispensations has a distinct method or basis for salvation, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, later this evening. Uh, a second uh, distinctive is that there is a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And thirdly, uh, the issue of uh, literal hermeneutics and what does it actually mean to be literal in your uh, interpretation of Scripture. And so uh, we certainly take the Scriptures quite seriously, and we're not willing to say that we don't uh, interpret them literally, but we do need to understand what uh, we mean by that and what is appropriate, and so I hope we can learn about that as well. Now, last time I put these on the board, I'm going to write them down for you just again, uh, just to remind you that we have innocence. Conscience, government, promise, law. Then we have grace. This is the church age that we live in according to dispensationalism. And then there is the future kingdom. And so there are the dispensations. So this is going to be the time of Adam. Basically, here we're at Noah. Here we're at, uh, here we're at Moses. Abraham, Moses, and, the, and then the church. Here is, if you want to line those up with the uh, historical characters that we see in the Holy Scriptures. And so last week we began to talk about those, and, and I was trying to make this first point, and that is that uh, each covenant has a abiding significance and comes to full flower in the new covenant. So in, instead of seeing there being in, in, in history times that have a beginning and a, 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 a sharp ending, then a completely different era or dispensation with its ending. What we have instead is we have the covenant with Adam with its abiding effects. We have the covenant with Noah and its abiding effects. We have the covenant with Abraham and its abiding with effects. The covenant with Moses and, and, and Israel and its abiding effects. The covenant with David and its abiding effects. And then, of course, we come to the new covenant. So last week we talked a little bit about Adam, 
and Noah and Abraham. And I'm going to mention that again at the end of this section. But let me move on for the sake of time and, and, to, um, and to make some progress tonight to the uh, fourth of the covenants that we see in the Scriptures, which is with Moses. And so basically we're talking about this era here in dispensationalism, the period of law. Let me remind you again that you won't hurt my feelings if you raise your hand, if you have a question, if something's not clear. Uh, we're, going, we're, we're sort of in that mode and not in uh, don't interrupt, uh, you know, in, in, in a more formal sermon setting. So I just want to mention it again that you're certainly welcome if you have a question to uh, draw my attention to it and we'll be glad to in, entertain any questions that you might have. When we come to the covenant with Moses and the law, we see in the Ten Commandments a comprehensive and formal statement of God's law. Now, I would suggest to you that we should not think about God's precepts as if they started with Moses or as if they started at Mount Sinai. Let me ask you a few questions. How did Cain and Abel know what kind of sacrifice was appropriate and when they were to come and offer them way back in the beginning of time in the first family? How did they know that? Well, maybe a little more uh, obvious question that, that we should ask would be, when Noah is preparing the ark, how does Noah know the distinction between clean animals and unclean animals. I mean, isn't that something that we're told in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, uh, where it's laid out in great detail? Well, how did Noah know that he was supposed to have two pairs of every unclean animal, but he was supposed to have seven pairs of every clean animal? Well, how did Noah know that distinction? I do want to draw your attention to one verse back in, the, in Genesis in chapter 26. And I would suggest that the way Cain and Abel knew and the way Noah knew is because they had revelation from God about these things that are not recorded in Scripture. We don't have it in the pages of our, uh, of our text in Genesis how those things were revealed to them. But I would suggest to you that God had very clearly identified what his will is. This is a verse that I've always found, found particularly interesting. This is Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. This is, has to do with uh, God and Abraham, and it says in verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give, you, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. Now, when we go back and look at the time of Abraham and before, where do we see in the Scriptures detail laying out of God's laws and His commandments and his statutes. And the answer is we don't actually see that anywhere recorded for us. But the testimony concerning Abraham here is that he did, in fact, have uh, commandments and statutes and laws from the Lord. And that he followed those things. He obeyed those things. So we shouldn't think 
that uh, the principle of law and God's precepts begins for the first time uh, with Moses or at Sinai. The moral and ethical principles of the law uh, were derived from God's character. They have always applied to mankind. And you know, when we come to the New Testament in the Sermon of the, on the Mount, we see several things concerning the commandments. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, we can turn over there, look at just a couple of verses. In Matthew chapter 5, we see in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what we see is that Christ is not coming to abolish the law. Rather, uh, it is his, in fact, is it not his word that was given in the Old Testament to the prophets? If you read in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it says there that the prophets were always trying to study and to grasp and to understand what had been revealed to them. And it says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that what had been revealed to them had been revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ. And so we don't have some spirit, some, uh, some principles of religion that are being uh, unfolded in the Old Testament. And then when we come to the New Testament, all of a sudden, uh, it's, uh, it's Christ that's involved in uh, teaching us and explaining things to us. Christ has always been the prophet to uh, the church in all ages, and it was the Spirit of Christ, according to 1 Peter uh, 1.11, that was at work in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, here in uh, Matthew 5, again in verse 18, we read, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, nor uh, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you grew up by using the old King James versions, I did. It's jot and tittle. No jot or tittle of the law will pass away. And so God's law will, in fact, last forever. What we see instead in the New Testament, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount, the supreme example, we see the commandments are elevated to their true spiritual significance and in their relevance to our hearts and to our conduct. And so it's not just about my, my external behavior, but it's also about my heart. And Christ elevates the law to its true spiritual significance here in Matthew chapter 5 and following. In Galatians 3, if you'll turn over there with, with me for just a moment, Paul makes this statement. Galatians chapter 3. And I'm looking at verses 23 and 24. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or could be translated our tutor, or our schoolmaster. Guardian is a good translation. Those words as well. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, Paul is making a statement here about the macro picture. He's talking about in history, when you look at about that, look at that whole era when the law was uh, the, the, the dominant uh, force in the life of Israel and God's people, that the, the law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. I would suggest to you, as we see 
in a, a multitude of examples in the Old Testament that if you look at it on a micro level, that is, if we bring it down to us as individuals, this, this same truth applies to us individually. The law for us individually was a tutor that brings us to Christ. How do we know, apart from God's law, how do we know that we are sinners in need of a Savior? I would suggest to you that uh, that understanding comes to us from the law of God. It is the law of God that places us under conviction. It places us under condemnation. It serves that purpose, purpose to teach us so that we might come to Christ because it is Christ who is the only remedy that, it, that exists for our condition. And it is the law that paints for us a picture of who we are and what we are. You may recall that in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, uh, Paul makes reference to the fact that he wouldn't have understood his true sinfulness if he had not read in the law, thou shalt not covet. But when he, when he was exposed to that word from the law, and when he contemplated that and looked into his own heart, he found himself to be utterly sinful. We see that in that example in Romans chapter 7. But there is more than that concerning the law and us in Christian, as Christians as far as its abiding effects. The law is my friend directing my life onto the path that my born-again heart needs to be walking on if it is to have joy and satisfaction. The law is no longer just my enemy that condemns me, but when we are born again, when we have a heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God, the law actually becomes my friend. It, as David says, it is a a, a rock for my feet and a light for my path. Uh, it, it, is, it is the place that my steps need to be if I'm going to be with my born-again heart, if I'm going to be joyful, and if I'm going to be satisfied uh, in my life in this present world. And so the law becomes my friend to accomplish that for me. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. First John chapter 5 and verse 3. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. Now, John is talking about the love of God that we have in us if we are true believers. And he says this in verse 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that is the love of God that is at work in you if you are a true Christian. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then this is the statement I want to bring to your attention. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if we're not a Christian, any one of us, then the law of God is a horrific, unbearable burden. We cannot keep God's law. And it is nothing but burdensome to us. For what John says here is when our heart is converted, when we have the love of God actually at work by grace, in our hearts, that the law becomes something very different for us, and it is not a burden for us. Instead, uh, it is our friend. So far from the new covenant, as the dispensational view would have it, 
this coming to a law and having no purpose anymore. So much so that some dispensationists actually don't want to go back to the Old Covenant, to the Old Testament scriptures to draw any close application. They don't want to use it uh, for that purpose. I would suggest to you that in the spirit, in the, in the dispensation that would be known as grace, according to that scheme, that we are connected to God's law in a way that we never were before. Let me point out one more scripture to you in Hebrews chapter 8. You probably know this verse already. When in Hebrews 8, our writer is quoting from Jeremiah, the prophet, about the new covenant. In verse 10, he's quoting from Jeremiah. He says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so it is in the new covenant that the law becomes not only a law written on tablets of stone, but it becomes a law that is written on the hearts of every covenant person in the new covenant. And so far, far from being removed from the period of law and the law itself, I would suggest to you that we are absolutely connected to it in the new covenant by the grace of God in the heart of every believer. Yes, sir. The way that I would uh, deal with it if I was going to do it uh, scripturally is um, I would go back to Jeremiah, to this chapter that we just read where it says, I'm going to write my law in your hearts. And I don't have it with me, but I have a list uh, that I could provide of verses in the book of Jeremiah that very clearly state, I think it's about, 10 of them, there are references to my law, my law, my law, my law, my law, my law, my law. I am going to write my law on their hearts. And it's clearly, clear that these statements are referencing, you know, the Ten Commandments and God's law in the Old, in the Old Testament. And uh, I would, I, that is one way that I, I approach that biblically, try to approach biblically uh, that concept because I, I don't think we could say that in Jeremiah 31 the term my law means something completely different from what it does all around it in the chapters before and after. And so if that makes sense. But that would be one, a biblical approach that I would take with someone who would maybe, you know, think that the authority of Scripture was a serious argument. Of the church, that's correct. Right. And we're going to talk about Israel and the church in just a moment. But uh, that aside, I, I do think that, um, that uh, all of the scriptures apply. 
And if you wanted to prove the idea that all the scriptures apply, let me just give you one super example. Uh, from the very first words of Matthew to the last words of Revelation, everything about new covenant religion, new covenant people, new covenant principles is proven by quotations from the Old Testament. And I don't even know now off the top of my head what the number of quotations are, but it's like a humongous number of quotations from the Old Testament. So what we see in the Bible in the New Testament from first to last is we see appeals to the um, Old Testament Testament Scriptures as proof that what I'm saying now in my New Testament context is true. Is this the Old Testament Scriptures prove and bear out that it's true? And so uh, that principle as well as far as the question that you ask. The book of Hebrews, of course, we won't get into that because we spent a lot of time in Hebrews in our Sunday school class, a couple of years. But uh, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say one thing about anything without appealing to the Old Testament scriptures uh, to prove that it's so. And so I would suggest that far from the law being something that terminates and has a, a, a harsh uh, ending, uh, at the time of the new covenant coming into effect, that instead we see quite the opposite in the New Testament scriptures. Any questions about that before we move on to David? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the law in its entirety in this sense continues. Obviously, the Ten Commandments are a, kind of a special uh, statement of God's moral law that uh, the whole world recognizes is, is kind of a unique and special statement of God's moral law. But uh, even, even, in, even in the parts of the Old Covenant that talk about uh, society and principles of living, uh, even in those things, though, uh, though that, the, that national setting is gone, it still gives us principles of equity, of honesty, of uh, uh, what would be appropriate types uh, of government principles to operate society by. And so there's a lot of principles and abiding truth throughout, you know, all of the old, old covenant law, even among those things that were strictly a societal to Israel and couldn't be uh, replicated now, even if we really wanted to, we couldn't do some of those things. But it is, it is useful uh, to see what the Old Testament law says about all kinds of human relationships and societal things and principles that are there that would promote good society and, uh, and righteousness in the world. And so in that sense, I think the law has abiding, uh, abiding uh, uh, you know, significance for us. Now, all the things that were shadows, all the things that were types, all the things that were pictures. Uh, Hebrews makes it clear that the substance has come. And so we don't expect in any way, shape, or form uh, to see those things continue uh, into the future now that Christ has come because he is the fulfillment of all the things that were shadow and type and picture.
That is that is correct. That is correct. Any other questions about that? Okay. Let's move on to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, we read this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we have this promise to David that his throne is going to be forever. Now, it's interesting when you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, how our New Testament begins. Our New Testament scriptures begin with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why do you think it is that when Matthew starts his gospel and he's going to explain to us about the Christ, why does he start with the words, the son of David and the son of Abraham? Well, I would suggest that it is because David's greater son, whom David calls his Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1. Let me read that verse to you. Psalm 110, verse 1, David speaking says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, you may not be aware of this, but Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm from the, Old Te- from the Psalms in the New Testament. So, if anybody ever asks you what psalm is quoted more than any other in the New Testament, the answer is Psalm 110. And so, what David is acknowledging there is that there is one that even he calls Lord. Now, as far as saying the seed of uh, the son of Abraham, uh, we know from Galatians 3.16 uh, that the one seed of Abraham uh, is Christ. Let me read Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so what Paul is saying there in Galatians is when God said to Abraham, I'm making promises to you and to your seed, that the seed that he had in mind was the one seed, the one person that would descend from Abraham, that is the Messiah, that that is who that promise was to. And of course, Abraham, uh, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3 that if we are connected to the Christ, who is that one seed of Abraham's covenant, then we are also the offspring of Abraham, and we are his children. And so that's the principle he's laying out there. Now, in Isaiah chapter 9, when the prophet is going to lay out for us one of the most explicit statements about the coming Messiah, the the Messiah to come, Isaiah chapter 9, in verses 6 and 7, we read this. We're familiar with this because we read it oftentimes at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And then notice these words. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of, of hosts will do 
this. And so when he talks about the Messiah that's going to come, the child that's going to come, and this one that the government is going to rest on his shoulders, and it is going to be called, it is going to be because of his rule that peace will come into this world that knows no peace. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, as he's revealing this truth about Messiah to us, that he is actually going to do this from the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, when we turn to uh, the New Testament, to Ephesians 1, and we are going to be reading a parallel to what we just read in Isaiah, this child is going to come and he's going to rule. He's going to be the, the source of, of the government and authority. And we have it in a little bit different language, but the same idea described to us here in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. Paul is praying for God's people that they would know certain things. And, he, and, and among those things, he says in verse 19, that he was praying for us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then notice what happened after the resurrection. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Paul is describing here the authority that has been given to Christ after he was raised from the dead. The, the authority that he has that is above every other authority, every other dominion, every other power. He is the one who has been given the government to rest upon his shoulders, as Isaiah talks about. But in Isaiah, he talks about the throne of David and his kingdom. And here, what does he say he is the head of? He is the head of the church. And so there is an equivalence here between David and his throne, David in his kingdom, Christ in his exalted place at the right hand of God, and his authority over all nations, and him being made head to his church. Now, it's interesting back in Isaiah 55, there is a text here that has many times been used as a gospel text to call people uh, to come to Christ. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Let's stop there for just a moment. And so this is a gospel invitation. God saying, if you will come and seek from me what are the true riches and what it, where, it, where you can find uh, true living water to drink, water for your soul, uh, he, he is saying here 
that you can come and do this, whether you have any resources or not, whether you have any money or not, uh, you can just come. And the invitation is there for all to come and to drink and eat. But let me read you the last part of that verse where we pause. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And so when that gospel invitation goes out, what he is saying is, do you know what the blessing is that you're going to receive? You're going to receive the blessings of the love that I have and the promises that I made to David himself. That is what you will receive. We know that Jesus is David's greater son. Jesus takes up the throne and the dominion and the authority in substance of which David was only a dim shadow, picture, and type. And so when we see David consolidate the kingdom, we see the kingdom prosper under David, it was a picture, a shadow, a type of what the Lord Jesus Christ would really do and would completely do when he sits on David's throne. Any questions about David before we kind of conclude this, this part? Okay, if not, let me just summarize this way. When we come to the new covenant, we see all those previous covenants and their accumulated effects brought to fullness in Christ's Christ church. We see God's people brought to ruin by the first Adam, but brought to new life by the second Adam. The covenant of works perfectly fulfilled by him. We see the age of gospel patience, which began with Noah, explode into new horizons by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the church following the day of Pentecost. We see the seed of Abraham come blessing all the nations of the earth. You remember Revelations 5, 9 says that you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we see the law brought to its real spiritual purpose in people made alive by the Holy Spirit by grace. We see the good days of David's earthly success brought to universal and spiritual significance through the exalted and ascended Christ, who not only rules in sovereign province over sober human history, but he extends his kingdom where David never could. He extends it into the hearts and consciences of every single person in his kingdom. Now, don't you know that David would have liked to think that he could affect the hearts and the, and the consciences of all the people in his kingdom? But no, David had no power at all to do that. But our Lord Jesus Christ does that uh, in his church. And so, if we have no questions about that, any questions, we'll move on to the next aspect, which is the distinct basis of salvation for each dispensation. In each dispensation, there's a distinct basis for salvation. It is the test of the tree of life here. It is, um, it is moral conscience. It is whether or not people scatter and fill the earth as we go down the dispensations. It is staying and dwelling in Egypt in the next dispensation. It is breaking the law in the next dispensation. It is rejecting the gospel in the next dispensation. And then when the kingdom comes and the future and dispensationalism is again going to be on the basis of disobedience that people break that 
a dispensation and are judged. Let me suggest to you that from the beginning of the world, salvation has always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That that was true for Adam, it has been true for every generation, it is true uh, to this very day. It has always been by faith in Christ. Let me just see if I can prove that to you from the Scriptures. When Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, you know those verses. We can kind of turn there. I'm not going to read them all. But if you want to flip over there to Romans 10, to, just to have your eye on them. Verses 10, this is Romans 3, verses 10 and following. Where we read, none is righteous. None is righteous. None does good. No one seeks God. Nobody has any value or worth. That's the, what we read there in Romans chapter 3 that, um, that is being laid out for us by Paul. He is not stating there a new doctrine or a new condition for men that men find themselves in because we are in, now in a new dispensation, the church age. Paul is not stating something new about humanity. Paul is actually, in these verses, quoting from Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Jeremiah 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36 as we go from verses 10 uh, and following down to verse 18. He's quoting from all those Old Testament uh, passages which is which is showing us that this was the condition of men in David's day in, uh, in the days of the Old Covenant. And I would suggest all the way back to Adam, uh, these things were, have always been true of fallen mankind. So this is not a new reality. And so then the question comes, how could any person, if in the New Testament times, if we can only overcome this no good, no seeking God, no knowledge of God, no fear of God, all these things. If we, can, if we can only overcome that by the power of the Holy Spirit and by grace, how do we think anyone in the old covenant days believed, was righteous, truly worshiped God from the heart? How do we think any of those things happened? Well, I would suggest to you uh, that the answer is actually obvious, and it is that they did not. Uh, actually do that. And note in uh, Romans 3 here that the remedy is found in verses 21 and 22 where we read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so what is the remedy to this situation of no one seeking God, no one uh, no one uh, uh, having anything good, no one having anything of value. The, the answer to that is found in verse 22 there. It is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But note in verse 21, that statement at the end of the verse, the law and the prophets bear witness to that truth. This is not something that is new. It's what the law and the prophets have always said in the Scriptures. 
You remember in Luke 24, when our Lord was walking with those on the road uh, to Emmaus, uh, he said this. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so how is uh, Jesus Christ explaining himself uh, to the people on the road to Emmaus? He is explaining himself by appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we have in Genesis 3.15 what is called the Proto-Evangelium. It is the Proto-Evangelium means the first preaching of the gospel. Look at Genesis 3.15. If, uh, I hope that you're familiar with it already, but if you're not, this is the first preaching of the gospel, which says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is, uh, this is the text that tells us that it is the seed of the woman, it is the Messiah to come in the future, that uh, will, in fact, uh, crush the head of Satan, the enemy of Eve and her children. And that is going to be the basis of salvation. That is the basis of faith from this point forward. It is going to be belief in this person. Now, when Cain is born, he is named, and his name basically means gotten. And what Eve says is, is I have gotten a man, Yahweh. In the Hebrew text, it actually says, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. And I believe that Eve thought that this child was going to be that child that was going to come and be the redeemer that was going to crush Satan's head. Now, it turns out that Cain is not that person. But then when Seth comes along, he is, he is named the appointed one. Abraham, in John chapter 8, verse 56, if you want to look at that verse, 856, we, when we come to Abraham and his day, note this statement that John makes in his gospel, John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And so the Lord Jesus Christ makes the claim that Abraham himself saw the day of Christ, the day of Jesus, and that he saw it during his life. He understood that, and that was the basis for his faith. Now, I want to show you something about the uh, Old Testament perspective that we see uh, in the gospel. Now, when we see the gospel record and the people there that are that are on the scene as Christ begins his public ministry. They are Old Testament people. Do we understand that? We haven't come into the New Testament yet. This is before the death of Christ and before Pentecost. These are Old Testament people. I want you to see a couple of things that I think are very interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Let me check my watch. We'll have just a few minutes and we'll be done. We'll just stop. Uh, Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verse 15, we read these words. This is Moses speaking. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, turn with me over to the Gospel of John. I want to show you the people. Just, just observe the, the, what the people are thinking. 
as we come to John's gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And that reference is to the understanding that the people of God had that there was this prophet that Moses had said would come, this great prophet that had to be listened to, this one like him. And he said, and he answered, No, this is John the Baptist speaking. But you see the question that they're asking him. Now look down at verse 25. They ask him, Why then? Are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And so they're asking John, why are you doing this if you're not the Messiah, if you're not the prophet? But the only point I want to make to you is this. These people that are hearing John preach have what on their mind? They have Messiah on their mind. They have the great prophet that is going to come on their mind. They're conscious of this. This is not something that is foreign to them. This is not apart from their thinking. This is not separated from what is as good Jewish believing people that they, they, their expectation is rooted in. Look over at verse 45. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. Then over in chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Chapter 7, verse 40. Chapter 7, verse 40. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And so they're hearing what the words that Christ is saying, and they're saying, this must be the prophet that Moses prophesied and that we're longing to see. This must be the Messiah. Now, concerning the Messiah himself, look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at, we'll do this very quickly, and then we will stop for the evening. Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. Now, this is Herod. And the wise men and the, the trouble that they have stirred up when they come on the scene. By the way, let me interject real quickly. Do you know why the, uh, the wise men, we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later. Do you know why the wise men were here? I think that it's because they had Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And we'll talk about that when we look at Daniel 7 through 12. Why they may have known and have thought that there may be a king in Israel. We'll look at that. In that prophecy. But here in uh, Matthew 2 and the verse is uh, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote the prophet. But my point is, they know exactly how to answer that, that question Where is the Messiah going to be born? The uh, scribes and Pharisees, they know. The answer to that question. They are conscious about that. Matthew twenty two forty two. Matthew twenty two forty two. Now while the Pharisees, this is verse forty one, while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is is he? 
And they said to him, the son of David. And so he, uh, they, are, they are very much aware that the Messiah is going to come uh, from David's family line. Look over it. I tell you what, we're so out of time that I'm just going to stop. I want to show you a few verses. We'll just do it quickly next time from Luke and from John where it gets even more obvious that they are Messiah-minded in their understanding of what uh, is going on in the world uh, of the religious world of their day, what their expectation was. So we'll stop there, and then we'll pick up with that, Lord willing. It's going to be two weeks from now, three weeks from now. Is that right? Just, yeah, before we're here again, just to make clear... But in the next week, the first Sunday of the month. Okay. All right. So two weeks from now then. Okay. just want to be. So two weeks from now, Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick this up and we'll try to kind of race to the end of this and then talk about Israel and the church. Let's uh, close with a, a word of prayer.